You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona. It is 8 o'clock, our outdoor living hour, second Saturday of the month. And we have ISA certified arborist John Eisenhower shimmying down his Arizona rosewood tree this morning. You've got this one shaped up like a tree. You could do, you could do a tree or a shrub, but nice uh, nice tree shape you've got here. You've been working on this one for a while. Yeah, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have to shimmy up your Arizona rosewood very often. They only grow to about 10 or 15 feet in height. But they're a um, a beautiful shrub tree, and the reason it's kind of has a designation as one of our favorite trees is because it's it's not only native uh, to Arizona and and uh, Mexico and California, but it's um, it's really bulletproof. It's one if you are going to plant um, a native tree, you have some degree of confidence here in Arizona that it's going to be well adapted if it's been. Uh, for millennia, uh, developing an ability to handle uh, our kind of temperature extremes, you know that you're going to have a pretty easy time maintaining it. You know, people always ask us, you know, should we always go with native trees? Not necessarily. Arizona has a big wide plant palette, and we have a lot of introduced species from all around the world that do well here. But if you do have a chance to put in a native tree like an Arizona rosewood, you won't be disappointed because it's going to be well adapted to our soil, to our weather, and this one is um, one of our favorites because it's evergreen. Uh, it's, as I said, bulletproof, has very few natural enemies, no, no pest or pathogen problems. Uh, and it's uh, really popular as, as a, a replacement tree for the oleanders, which, as many of you know, are uh, subject to the bacterial leaf scorch, which has wiped out a lot of our oleanders around Arizona. And a lot of people are looking for a suitable uh, uh, replacement plant. And these Arizona rosewoods are, are well known as kind of a hedge, uh, a nice hedge plant. You can plant them on two or three foot centers, and they provide a nice privacy screen because they're, they're, the foliage is nice and full at the bottom. And as I said, they're evergreen, so you're, they're not going to lose their leaves and you lose your privacy screen. If you put in a deciduous tree, of course, that's not going to work. But uh, Arizona rosewood are are a really nice uh, option for those of you who've taken out um, some oleanders or contemplating it because you have that oleander leaf scorch. Uh, Arizona rosewood is a pretty nice option for that. And it's a pretty green. You know, it's, a, it's a dark green. It's, yeah, it's a, a rich dark, green. It's a darker green leaf, and, and they're, uh, they're kind of uh, slow-growing. Uh, this is the one drawback. You know, If you want something that's going to be a little faster-growing, you might consider putting citrus in, or um, possibly hop seed. Those are two other good screening plants that grow a little faster. But if you're willing to wait a little bit longer, the Arizona rosewood is uh, you know, slow growing, but it has a persistent, uh, nice dark green leaves. Actually, there's a little bit of a bloom in the spring too. It's not a, a real pronounced flowering sh- uh, shrub, but they have nice little white flowers on the branch tips in the spring and and uh, but they're mainly known for its dark green leaf and a uh, a nice thick privacy screen. And a lot of times, slow growing is people look at that as a, as a negative or 
a deterrent for something. But oftentimes, the slow-growing ones are the most hardiest, durable, yeah. and longest-lasting. That's right. And a lot it, of times, that's your best choice. Sure. I, and for that reason, yeah, they they don't tend to outgrow their landscape purpose. Like some trees, it's, you know, they, they, they reach their uh, uh, ideal height and spread in your in your landscape. And you wish you could just freeze them right there and say, okay, stop. But then they continue to grow like many of our hybrid polyverdes and mesquites. Uh, before you know it, you have a, a tiger by the tail and you have a, a, a an out-of-control plant that you have to be constantly trimming, uh, investing a lot of time and energy and money uh, into uh, um, keeping under control. And Arizona rosewood, just like the uh, live oak tree, it's a slower-growing tree, puts on wood more slowly, uh, and is a a little more contained and controlled. That's why I like to recommend them because they uh, are a little slower get, achieving their landscape purpose, but once they reach it, they uh, don't tend to exceed it very, very fast. If you'd like to talk trees, you can get on the line right now and talk to John Eisenhower at one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. Text questions can be sent to 411-923 or email info at rosieonthehouse.com. You know, one other benefit of a slow-growing plant, it doesn't have as big of a litter problem. <laughs> you know, if, and it makes sense because if it's putting on wood more slowly, it, it's, uh, it just isn't dumping leaves um, all the time. In fact, this tree is known for having leaves that persist for two or three years before it will drop those leaves and put on new ones. And the, uh, uh, they're a, a thick, leathery leaf, and the tree puts a lot of energy into creating those leaves. And as a result, they persist on the tree for a long time, period of time. So if you want one of those low-litter plants as well, uh, for that reason, uh, Arizona rosewood's a pretty nice choice. We do get asked about that a lot. What's a, what's a plant or a tree that doesn't produce a lot of leaf dropping? Yeah, look for those means- slow-growing trees like the mastic, the pistachio uh, lentiscus, you know, which is a— a very popular smaller tree. Again, uh, because they're slow growing, they're not turning turning over those leaves as quickly. Uh, we have trees, you know, that are seem to be dumping leaves all year long. Your African sumac and your mesquites, they're just you know constantly uh, dropping leaves and putting on new leaves. But that's uh, that's the benefit of a fast growing tree. If you're willing to, if you like that idea of a tree achieving its landscape purpose quickly. Well, you have to realize the trade-off is that you're going to be have, have a it's a going to be a higher litter producing tree. So you're going to have that leaf litter, and the and often the uh, the the blossoms, uh, and then of course the seed pods, which can uh, follow. And if you uh, have a mesquite tree and you're nodding your head right now, I'm sure, <laughs> knowing that every it almost seems like every season of the year you've got something dropping out of your mesquite tree. If it's not a leaf, it's the blue, the blossom. If it's not the blossom, it's the seed pod. And then by the time you get your last seed pod raked up, it's time for a new leaf drop, you know. <laughs> or that that sap that stains your car that you uh, can never get off. <laughs> yeah, the, the 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 slime flux that that black um, liquid that oozes out of some of our our desert trees, like um, your uh, mesquites especially. But it, I saw a lot of slime flux in in a. Uh, a willow acacia yesterday, and it's just as bad and, and ornery. And yeah, that can be a cosmetic and a problem if it's dripping on your driveway or your pavers <laughs> or your pool deck. And there's some solutions for that, by the way. We we do uh, have a, a chemical um, application. We can put uh, it's a, a phosphorus-based uh, product that can actually dry up that 
that that slime flux, and you might want to contact um, us for a little more information on that. It's a, it's a great prod, um, uh, product product that actually gives us a couple of years of of, of some relief from that slime flux. Well, I had always called it sap, but now I've got to retrain my brain to call it slime flux. flux. Doesn't that sound just great? It's sounds like it, something from the Ghostbusters movie. It is. Slime well, flux. it is. It is a mild bacterial infection, uh, and it, it 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 looks for a place to express that out of the nearest um, available weakness in the vascular system. It's generally out of a pruning cut or a narrow angle of attachment between a couple of branches. And wherever uh, the pressure builds up inside the system due to that infection, and it'll start um, pushing some of that black liquid out. Uh, sometimes it's, you know, you'll see it even in our native trees. It's not that a serious an issue. It generally doesn't affect the long-term health of the plant, but it can be a bit messy if you're over a, um, a, a landscaped area. We are in November. What it's on our tree calendar here? Well, you know, he, you think that by the end of the year, you know, we're kind of running out of um, topics because of the time of year as plants tend to slow down. But gosh, this the fall is is in Arizona is, is still a, a, a time when we do um, a fair amount of pruning and fertilization, especially fertilization. This is our time of year. If you're going to do an annual fertilization, we recommend a fall fertilization. But this is our, our application window for late season fertilizer. And it's a great time to get some fertilizer down. Uh, we always um, let our our, our uh, tree owners know that trees use the stored nutrients in the fall and winter for a very strong push of new growth and their blossom in the spring. Sometimes if you end up fertilizing in the spring and summer, you're chasing a nutrient deficiency. Whereas fall fertilization, the research has shown, is probably your optimum time for fertilizing because, as I said, the plants use those stored nutrients in the fall and winter for a really strong push in the spring. And they, they hit the road running, so to speak. You don't want to wait and be chasing that nutrient deficiency by fertilizing too late into, the, into that early, early year. So this is a great time for that um, for fertilization. <laughs> my, my, my seat's collapsing sure? on me here. What happened here? <laughs> Fall fertilization. Yes. And can you do that to every deciduous and evergreen? Well, this, yeah, you can fertilize all your, all your trees and shrubs this time of year, great time. But as far as pruning is concerned, you, you want to kind of lighten your dosage of pruning on any of your frost-sensitive plants as you head into the cooler weather. That would include your citrus, any of your flowering trees. You want to kind of be careful that you're not um, uh, uh, pruning too heavily. If There's a risk, too, that, you know, if we do get some frost and you've taken off uh, some of the outer branches, the frost will, will damage the plant deeper into the interior. So you want to leave your, your frost-sensitive trees as full as you, as you can. You can do some minor grooming on citrus trees even this time of year. If you've got a citrus tree that's... Uh, rubbing up against the roof or it's crowding the sidewalk, you know, you can certainly trim those back a little bit to give yourself some clearance. But don't do any heavy pruning on your citrus trees until next spring. Uh, you don't want to be taking off their winter coat just when we're turning the corner into the colder weather. But there are a lot of plant trees that we prune pretty much year-round. Um, uh, your more vigorous trees like your mesquites and your sumacs, your olives, trees that are putting on a lot of growth and 
you just can't make it through the uh, a full season with, without a, a little bit of, of, of trimming. Um, we actually recommend on some of our heavier um, growing trees, like those mesquites and others, because they get pruned uh, in May and June as kind of pre-monsoon trimming, this is kind of a six-month, uh, a- kind of an annual uh, second pruning uh, this time of year in November. And we'll often do a little bit of pruning this time of year and then again six months from now. We're talking trees, one 767 The expert that's brave enough to say the word, deciduous. Talking Trees with John Eisenhower. Rosie on the house. And we've got a special this week. A lot of times we have a listener giveaway to do. This week, we have listener giveaways. We've got Coyotes tickets coming up later. We've got Suns tickets coming up later. And right now, we have ASU Sun Devil tickets for the basketball game. Now, I don't, in, in our newsletter that goes out on Thursday, the trivia question was asked. What was the furthest ASU basketball has made it in the NCAA tournament? They've got like, you know, the, the I don't remember all the names, but the 64, then 32, then 16, then 8, then 4, then obviously the championship. How mm-hmm. far have they made it? Text the answer to 411923, and we'll send you to the game Thursday, November 14th. I'm always a little leery when you don't see players on the tickets. These are cheerleaders. Are, <laughs> are we not expected to do good this year, or <laughs> is it because we're playing Central Connecticut State and they don't expect it to be much of a game? No. <laughs> they got a pretty good team. <laughs> Central. So it must just be because we're playing Central Connecticut. <laughs> I didn't Ooh. know there was a Central Connecticut <laughs> University Tech or something like that. You know? Section B1, row 29, seats 5 and 6. So if you know the farthest ASU basketball has made it in the NCAA tournament, text that answer to 411923 and we'll send you to the game on Thursday. Now, before we get to our next Talking Trees point, a listener texted in earlier and wanted to know if the Arizona Rosewood would work in Munns Park. How high in an elevation can we plant this tree? You know, I think they're in the 2,500 to 4,000 foot range. That's so not much past Dewey. Yeah, that may not get you all the way up to Munns. That might be a little bit too too high up. Um, but I'll have to do a little bit of research on that. But I think it's that's a little bit out of their normal range. Marty's in Paradise Valley and also wants to talk about the Rosewood. Welcome to the broadcast. Thank you. John, I have a couple questions. I have oleanders that surround the greatest part of my property that have been here, and I'm serious, over probably 35, maybe 40 years. This house was built in the mm-hmm. 70s. So I'm, they're, they're just, they're pretty rough. Uh, they, and they're having, they've got that disease or that bacterial mm-hmm. thing where about every fourth or fifth one's mm-hmm. dying, and it's just time for them to go. So... I'm, this is interesting to hear about these uh, Arizona rosewoods. Can you tell me what height these might get? You know, they the top rosewood. out at only about 10 or 15 feet in height, so they're not going to get up to oh, that 20, 25-foot height that a lot of the oleanders are able to grow. So you keep that in mind, that they're not going to be that really tall screening plant that uh, that, that oleanders become. But yeah, 10 well, or 15 that 10 foot. 10 feet would be great. 
Yeah. Oh, that'd be great. And and uh, here's the other question. We we were pondering back and forth. We've got bids on removing these oleanders, and um, I'm just wondering be, uh, between the option of having them stump ground down about, they said they'd stump grind them down at least three, four feet, or someone was going to get a backhoe and just pull them out. When you go to plant these rosewoods, is it obvious that they do much better with that oleander root base completely gone? Yeah, we've done both and uh, ground them out and also pulled them out with a backhoe. Backhoes is, is is really going to be your fastest way to bring in a little mini hoe. And, and if you've got a pretty well-established hedge like you're talking about, those roots can be pretty deep. And if you... Um, uh, if you're grinding uh, a good, even a good grinder, you know, can usually only go down about 12, 12 inches or so into the soil, maybe a little bit deeper. Uh, but it often, you'll often leave a lot of root material behind in a in a well-established hedge like you just described. What I'd suggest is, you know, yeah, bringing in a backhoe because then you can just uh, rip the entire root ball out, and you'll have the planting area pretty much ready to put the new the new plants in. We appreciate the call. That's the Arizona Rosewood, our featured tree shrub of the month. Uh, John brings one in every month. And uh, I'm sorry, <laughs> that's what I was talking about here. And that's the one for this month, the Arizona Rosewood, a native and a very hardy and uh, water-conserving. Yeah, we've got a um, one other point I wanted to mention. We talked about pruning and uh, I would be I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that our the one the, the trees that we do want to um, be pruning this time of year, even though we're a little lighter on the with the pruners with our evergreens, is our deciduous trees. All the deciduous trees, those that lose their leaves in the winter, uh, can be uh, can be pruned this time of year. Generally, targeting during their full dormancy, if we even have a, a dormancy uh, for the plant, but that's uh, usually December. January. So if you have your your mulberries and your pecans and your elm trees and your ash and other uh, trees that lose their leaves in the winter, uh, be uh, thinking about uh, December and January as your target time for pruning those. You can sometimes prune them other times of of the year, but if you're going to be doing them once a year, that's a good time of year to, to get those done. Talking trees, and we'll have more after the bottom of the hour news break on our November tree calendar. Things to do around your home, Kessler Cabin, as it relates to your trees and shrubs. And you can join the conversation at 1 767 4348. Oh, the answer is Elite Eight. His bark and bite, they're about the same. Talking trees with John Eisenhower, Rosie on the House. Continuing on our tree calendar for November, you've got a bullet point on here about lighting up your trees. A lot of decorations going to be pulling out over the next couple weeks. Yeah, just a word of encouragement to be sure that you do a little bit of trimming on the trees before you put the lights in, because if you have to do the trimming afterwards, it's a, a real pain. And it's difficult on the lights, too, to have to be working around those. Also, just attach them carefully, you know, try not to use nails and staples and other types of things to uh, attach your lights to the trees. Better if you do wrap the branches, too, we recommend 
you know, wrap the lights around the branches, which is awesome to do. Um, we do recommend taking them off at the end of the season and not leaving them on, you know, for a year or two because it will girdle those branches and cause some problems. And then the lights end up breaking, and, and then it's really hard to get them out. <laughs> We've done a lot of that, all the above. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's hard to climb the trees and, and do any kind of uh, significant trimming when they're, all the branches are laced out with uh, lights. So nice to get the trimming done first, put the lights in, and then, of course, take the lights out um, when the season's over uh, before you uh, hey, John, do some more trimming. Yeah. I, just, I just thought of something. Uh, have you in your whole career ever wrapped lights around tall trees like for, say, for example, Prescott's uh, lighting ceremony? Climb trees to put lights on for the holidays. You know, we do some uh, do some light uh, light installations. Yes, um, you know, we are actually ramping up that service in the next year. So it might be, you might want to uh, uh, contact us after the be- uh, won't be this season, but next year. Uh, kind of get in, uh, into the queue because we're thinking of uh, actually developing a decor um, service, and it, it makes sense. You know, we have a the. Um, the ability to get up into trees, and we're already there. Uh, we actually do a bit of gutter cleaning, and and you know, I mean, it just comes goes with the uh, uh, with the business because we already are up in the trees and uh, close to roofs and homes, and and so uh, yes, we uh, don't do any currently, but uh, in the next year or so, it could be. Um, I, I do my own trees too. It's kind of fun. We get up in the trees, and you get up to the top, set a line, and rappel down, and. And set lights uh, wherever you want in the different branches, and it's quite an art and a science involved in it as well to, to do it well and have good quality equipment and and uh, have the right uh, lighting fixtures and uh, different ones for different types of trees and applications. And if you don't want to mess with it, or don't have the time or tools, exactly or ability, you yeah. just go to to Prescott and walk around the courthouse square that they have 183 <laughs> trees. I think they wrap 90 of them right now. They're up, or, or they're up to 120 of the trees that yeah. they wrap and they keep them lit from the first Saturday in December through, I think mid February. Yeah. Mark your calendar. Well worth the trip up there, you know, you take the family and just enjoy those lights. Yes. Julia wants to talk to us about a Sisu tree. Welcome to the program, Julia. How may we help you? Yes, thank you. I moved into a development, um, and I have dock walls around the backyard. Uh, the neighbor right behind me has a sisu tree quite close to the block wall. I don't know if he has ever had it trimmed, but unfortunately, his roots are now popping up new growth trees in my backyard, and it's driving me crazy. I'm wanting to know the best way to um, get rid of those if possible. Well, once the tree roots from your neighbor's tree have found a water source on your side of the fence, it's going to be very difficult uh, to control those that root growth because it will continue to expand. You know, you can try to chemically treat the sprouts that you see on your side of the wall, even do some excavation down a little bit lower below the soil surface and try to find the larger roots that those sprouts are attached to and try to uh, chemically um, uh, treat those with a contact herbicide. Uh, but that's sometimes a difficult task. We've I've, been a, I've served as an expert witness on a couple of uh, uh, 
court cases that involved neighbors with complaints about their uh, the roots roots growing across the property line and destroying their landscape. And it's a very difficult matter. You know, maybe something that we could talk about offline um, in a little more detail. I'd be happy to uh, to to speak with you about it. It's it's hard. There is a risk of actually hurting the tree. You know, your neighbor's tree. The best thing to do, would be, I, I would say, to begin the conversation would be to speak to your neighbor, uh, mention what's happened, show them what's going on, uh, of course, document it, and, and, and uh, see if they'd be willing to take the tree out. Uh, there is a process we have on our, on our website, itreeservice.com. There's an article on how to deal with Dalbergia sisu trees and how to treat the stumps properly. Once the tree's taken down, it will send a message for the tree to survive, and everywhere where there's roots underground, it'll send up a forest of new trees. So you have to um, chemically treat the stump as soon as the tree is removed. But that's your long-term solution is to is for your neighbor to be willing to remove the tree, uh, and that's uh, and if they're not, there's some uh, there's some other avenues for you know trying to get some action from your neighbor to help you. Great. Hey, can I backtrack just a little bit? Miss Marty called earlier, and we had she had one more question. She has um, a west wall of her house that's full sun, and she needs a tree. She wants a shade tree. She wants one that doesn't shed leaves. Evergreen, maybe. <laughs> what do you think? <coughs> the well, Arizona rosewoods comes to mind. Seems like I heard about that recently. <laughs> yeah. Well, no. She. You know, what the this the tree that should be selected for a west. West um, exposure uh, could be a deciduous or an evergreen tree because in the winter it's kind of nice to have the sun coming through, uh, but then it it would be leafed out and nice and full and providing shade in the in the summer. But the the tree or shrub to select would depend upon where you can plant the tree and what distance from the home or the window or the side of the house that you're trying to protect. If you're if you can plant you know four to six feet away from the the house, then of course a, a shrub like a, um, a Arizona rose would be would be ideal, or or any any number of smaller uh, shrubs, a large shrubs could be um, placed there. If you have to plant twenty feet from the tree from the house, then you're going to need a lot more vertical height to kind of get the angle uh, to 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 give you the shade you need at that angle. So uh, a pine tree maybe or a live oak. I love the live oaks for that reason. They're they're more upright, and they're they're going to grow taller than they are wide. You know, we have a lot of shade trees like your your elm and your ash, which grow wider than they drew, they grow tall. So you're not you know if you're wanting to try to get vertical height, that's you don't want to have a tree that has a weeping growth habit because it tends to want to grow out and down, out and down. But if you want a tree that's going to be more vertical in height and achieve that more quickly, look for a pine, live oak, and also the uh, the acacia anura. Or maybe the acacia um, uh, uh, salicina, or or the shoestring acacia. Any of the those t- acacias that tend to grow taller than they do than they do wide. We appreciate the call. We're going to go to Vicky now. Who wants to talk about citrus? Welcome to the program, Vicky. Hi, I have a lemon tree that is taller than my house, and was very full and gave us tons and tons and tons of lemons. Well, this year, and I fertilize it every, you know, in the months that you're supposed to. Mm-hmm. And this year, we lost like three huge branches off of it. So now we just have like two big branches going up that high. Mm-hmm. 
um, can we cut down the tree to a certain level so it can begin to grow? And how do I get other branches to start filling in? Can I leave some of those suckers in? Will they turn into branches or what do I do? Yes, any of those lower sprouts that are still in the lower part of the tree, um, yeah, leave those in because they will grow back in to kind of fill in for where um, those other branches were lost. But, yeah, you'll have to be kind of careful, too, in the spring. If, if it hasn't filled in yet, and it probably won't if, it, if this happened recently, you might need to protect that interior with a, a, uh, with a shade cloth. Uh, you can buy a 50-50 shade cloth at any hardware store or the nursery and drape it over that center part of the tree because if that gets sunburned, uh, then that cambium will be destroyed and there will be no, no sprouting that will emerge to kind of fill back in that spot. So maybe for the next six months, maybe the next year, you'll want to drape a, a, a square of, of shade cloth right over that exposed area in the bottom of the tree. The, the 50-50 shade cloth is nice because it provides some a little bit of shade, but it allows a, a little bit of sunlight to filter through to stimulate the, the, the growth of, the, um, of those sprouts below there. But yeah, you, you want to probably leave those other sections of the tree um, up because they're going to be uh, photo, you know, photosynthesizing and, and giving the tree the energy reserves it needs to, to replace the foliage that was lost. So I wouldn't cut, the, cut that back down thinking that you're going to push you know, more growth. I know it looks awkward and probably unbalanced right now, but at least for the time being until you get that some more regrowth on, in that other area, I would leave the, the remaining part of that tree intact because uh, that's going to be your lifeline for uh, the tree surviving. We appreciate the call, and you can jump on the line as well at one triple eight seven six seven four three four eight. That's one triple eight Rosie for you, or email like Chuck did from Tucson said. Could Mister Eisenhower recommend the best overall fertilizer that you could use on multiple trees like citrus and uh, natives, or do they need to have separate fertilizers? Do if you're going to fertilize a mesquite, can you use the same fertilizer that you would use on a citrus and then he says go tigers but you can tell he's probably just <laughs> pulling against alabama and not a real tigers fan because he only he spelled go with only two letters oh that giveaway. <laughs> giveaway it's a five letter go <laughs> <laughs> that's right yeah well um the uh help me out we've got refresh my memory What's, I, I I distracted you, you with distracted football. Me. You got me thinking <laughs> French. Best I'm, overall. My in, talking in French right now. Go ahead. Best can, overall fertilizer. Can right? you yeah. like when yeah. you go into a nursery? There's citrus fertilizer. Could you use that same fertilizer for mesquites or? You know the, these different fertilizers actually are formulated specifically with um, certain things in mind. They, the NPK ratio, the, the, the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium ratios are, you know, uh, pretty critical. When you have flowering trees and shrubs, you want a little higher phosphorus, which really helps to produce a better bloom. Uh, they're all going to have a, a combination of those three in different percentages. But overall, there's, um, you want to be sure you have, you know, you have your micronutrients, of course, in some of your fertilizer blends, which is very helpful in our in our soils because we have some um, you know, very high pH, so some of our nutrients are tied up. So we might need a chelated iron. We might need some of, of these other micronutrients as well as the macros. You know, you um, it's it's a it's a difficult question because sometimes we actually tr- you know um, 
change up our fertilizer formulations season to season as well, because in the spring, we like to push a little higher nitrogen for, for greening up our plants as they're putting on, there's a high, very high nitrogen demand in the spring as trees are putting on new, new, not just new leaves, but also new flowers and fruit. And then in the fall, we t- tend to push the, the, um, the phosphorus, potassium, for better root development, and we drop the nitrogen down a little bit because we don't want to push a lot of new growth in the, uh, in the fall uh, uh, at the risk that the new juvenile growth that's, that's, that emerges would be uh, frost-sensitive. So we, you know, we kind of have a, um, an early, mid, and a, and a late season uh, difference in the, t- in the types of fertilizer we, we recommend. So... Um, it's a little more complicated uh, than I can answer in a quick uh, summary, but that, that hope, hopefully that will be helpful. Speaking of the French, did you see that Paris is about to open the world's largest rooftop farm? No. Oh, we'll talk about it in a minute. Some grow nuts, some grow leaves. Either way you look at it, we're talking trees with John Eisenhower on Rosie on the House. You've heard of aquaponics, hydroponics. Well, they're going to use aeroponics on this new urban rooftop farm that they're opening up in France next year. It's 14,000 meters squared. So whatever that equates to square feet, I don't have time to sit down and figure out the, the math equivalent here, but it says it's equivalent to two football pitches. I mean, is that a rugby well, pitch? Is that a soccer kick? I, <laughs> it's, that's huge. That's, that's <laughs> Whatever it is, it's big. They'll have 30 different types of plants. There's also going to be a... Uh, restaurant on the rooftop, and people in the community can rent spaces to grow their own gardens. Pretty neat. It is cool. A lot lot of rooftop gardening going on, and the whole concept is that they're trying to bring the the source of our food closer to our table, you know. So if we can have these community gardens where, you know, we're actually growing produce and it's not too far from where it's going to be consumed, the distribution costs are going to be less, and, of course, you're, you're getting... Uh, controls over the quality of the fruit and the, the selection, and it's pretty awesome. That's, that's good to hear. And I like the the idea of utilizing space, just like we use our roof space for solar panels. And it's nice to be uh, seeing some of the, these green uh, roof uh, concepts um, being employed. Uh, we see a few of them right here in Phoenix that are are pretty cool. You've seen those uh, buildings at 68th Street and Camelback, those uh, apartment homes, and all those beautiful uh, uh, trailing plants that are growing in all the planter boxes on those those homes. And then there's trees up on the top of those uh, buildings as well, which helps to natural cooling. And it's uh, some really uh, innovative um, uh, uh, projects going on all around the world. really softens the building it does, to the yeah. environment sure does. and, and yeah. landscape around it. Interesting thing about this uh, aeroponic that immediately – went to the building mindset is one challenge with all of these is the massive amount of weight of dirt on your roof. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a soil-free growing process called aeroponics. So I'm, I'm really curious to, I now want to find that building engineer and talk to him about the weight load and what difference sure. their, yeah, their structure dealing is. Dealing with doing. all that, that soil in it. And yeah, and the watering issues is the big thing too, is, is have... I know there's an innovative product pro- project down in Phoenix too. Maybe we can do a little bit of research on that too. I know that it has a, a recycled water plan, and the, the water runs through the system like a radiator, uh, water in a, in a car's radiator system where it's recycled, 
And as it runs past the roots of the plant, it's collected and taken up. But then the water runs through and it's drained back up, pumped back up to the top of the system. It's a recycled uh, water program. It's uh, really pretty cool. So, yeah, a lot of these uh, um, ideas are are making their way into uh, practical applications. See if we can make our way through the rest of the calls. Mark wants to talk about citrus. Keith wants to talk about a carol tree. But we're going to start with Deborah talking pecans. Welcome to the broadcast. Hey, good morning. Um, so I have a pecan tree that we planted as a stick 25 years ago. Um, and so I have a fertilizing question and I have a pruning question. Um, it seems that a lot of the branches start from this tree about four feet up from the ground level. And this time of year, why those branches are long, like 12 feet long, and they are touching the ground because of the weight of the fruit. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm a little concerned about pruning those up because that's going to be a lot of the tree. So I don't know if I should cut them back, if I should cut them off, if I should just prop them up. Um, what kind of suggestions do you have for me on that? Well, I was just looking at a, a pecan tree yesterday and, and noticed it was pretty heavy with fruit right now, and as, as yours probably is. So if you can get past this fruit, you know, this fruit season just for the next month or two until they start to drop their, their fruit by propping up the branches, that might save you at least a, uh, um, the, save the fruit for the season. But it might just be pushing your decision out a little further as to what to do with those because they're going to get longer and leggier and only heavier next year. So I would suggest, you know, maybe considering uh, cutting those back. Uh, ideally, it'd be best to cut them back in the, during the dormancy uh, sometime in December and January, uh, with the idea that you're going to be getting a big push of growth next next spring and summer, so that you're not facing this problem now. Um, uh, so be be a little bit uh, more aggressive, uh, bearing in mind that you're going to get probably three to five feet of growth on all those branches every season. So maybe this winter, after you've gotten through this uh, fruit season. Uh, you know, prune them back a little more heavily than you did this year so that next fall they'll be nice and um, and under control and you won't be having those big, heavy, heavy branches that are at risk of breaking. We appreciate the call and hang on, Keith and Mark. will take your calls during top of the hour news. We've got about a minute left to wrap up here on November's Talking Trees. Any final uh, last last words? Oh, just that we do have a pruning class. Our last uh, pruning class at the Desert Botanical Garden is next. Next Sunday, November 17th, uh, from 2 to 4 p.m. So if uh, get on the uh, uh, Botanical Gardens website to register for that. It'll be our last uh, uh, class until next spring of next year. So I'd love to see you out if you want to learn how to prune your trees and shrubs. And uh, see you around next time. And a website if somebody would like to contact you or one of your certified arborists itreeservice.com I, the letter I, treeservice.com will get you there.